This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Content is more than Revit families. If it's digital, Avail can handle it. Learn more at getavail.com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have conversations with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the coevolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome back Roderick Bates to the podcast. Roderick is the head of integrated practice at Enscape 3D, where he's responsible for researching industry and market trends, which are shaping the way Enscape customers work. Leveraging that industry knowledge, he collaborates with Enscape product and R&D leaders to assess the new product development opportunities that will shape the future of building design. In this episode, we discuss Roderick's current research foray into what I'll call the road to the metaverse as kind of a catch-all title, and it includes who the major players are that have created the metaverse destinations that are out there and the tools that creators are using to actually get their designs and environments into those locations. And to provide a little more color to that general overview, beyond the companies themselves, we also discuss the destinations that exist today, the potential the metaverse may have for architects, and what value they could bring to it, some of the ethical implications architects practicing or creating content for the metaverse should be thinking about, the positive and negative impacts of immersion, including the possibility for manipulation in these kinds of environments, The architectural tech stack currently needed to become a creator in the metaverse, proactive architectural business model opportunities in relation to the metaverse, and more. I should note that there are many curated links that Roderick provided in the show notes, so I invite you to check those out as well. This was a fantastic conversation with Rod, and I hope you'll not only find value in it for yourself, but that you'll help add value to the profession by sharing it with your network. In addition to leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, which I really hope that you could do for me, it is literally the smallest act of generosity you can do to support this show and to help broaden the reach of conversations like these in my attempt to elevate the industry. I would also appreciate you visiting the sponsors who help make this episode possible. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Roderick Bates. Roderick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome back. back. Yes, welcome back. I should have said that. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited for this conversation. This is the first time on this podcast we are going to broach the subject of metaverse. Some people are triggered by that term alone, right? And they're already shutting this this I was one of them. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) so maybe still am. If that gives anybody an idea of where this is coming from, it's coming from kind of that skepticism and, you know, just just like, huh, let's see what happens with this. But you've had the opportunity to do a deep dive and uh, even prepare a bunch of stuff for a presentation that you gave it built and you might have given it in other places as well. But this this I, you know, I the research aspect of it from your point of view is what I'm really interested in hearing because I haven't had the chance to do that. And I'm sure many of our listeners haven't had the chance to do that. A lot of us are buried in projects and don't have the, 
let's just call it the luxury of looking into all of the things. And and you also have done kind of this deep dive into the tool sets uh, regarding building the metal meta, <laughs> the metalverse, the metaverse. So I I just want to open it up and and maybe you can give a little bit of backstory on how you why you had the opportunity to to look into this deeply and also then kind of the outcomes of the the work that you've put together. Well, the, it's rare when you can say you remember exactly when you decide to start looking into the, or research a particular topic, but in this case, I actually can. And it gets back to your first comment about people having almost an allergic reaction to the metaverse. And uh, I was in a webinar where they were talking about the metaverse, and it was a couple of real metaverse boosters that were there. And they, I'm sure they're knowledgeable. They have books that were either out or coming out on the topic, so they really knew their stuff. But they weren't talking about the details, about the technology. They were just talking about the concepts in fairly loose terms. And it made me realize that there is a paucity of information that's out there for someone like me, who I would say was is not engaged, at least at that time, in the metaverse to say, okay, really, what are we talking about from a technology perspective? And it also linked together with a webinar I had been on where I've been talking about various future opportunities in very general terms, and you know, people are bringing up the metaverse. And one of the audience members had asked me and said, "Hey, um, you know, this is great that you're talking about it. We're interested. You know, how do I get started?" And uh, I'm, I'm rarely at a loss for words, <laughs> but I was like, because those aren't the dots that are connected when people are talking about the vision and the what ifs of the metaverse and and Web three and NFTs and like all of these things that are kind of playing. They're circling around in the orbits around this big topic of metaverse. And we see a lot of companies who are trying to stake their claims in metaverse and different ways. And so I, I can only imagine, like, the answer is it depends. How do you get started? It Well, what do you want to do with it? What are the tools that are available today? How difficult is it? What kind of learning curve is there? And there's so many pathways, like all roads are eventually going to lead to this, It's it sounds like, but... But, it, it is to some degree, but what was interesting for me is a lot of times people would say, well, architects have it easy. They already understand virtual spaces and things like that, but that doesn't help anyone. It's almost it's almost too generic. So what I wanted to do was really understand what is the technology stack that's out there that can allow for the architectural community to have a play in the metaverse. And it, it just seemed like it was, was an opportunity where there was a risk of it, of it passing architects by. And when I started to look in and see what was coming through in the news and I'd see, say, different metaverse buildings that might be publicized, you know, um, I don't, I don't want to necessarily name names, but these are ones that would be in the Wall Street Journal or something like that. And they were no great shakes from an architectural perspective. And I was thinking, boy, there's a great opportunity here for architects to bring their design sense, almost an obligation for architects to bring their design sense to the metaverse. So that was what started the the topic. And how I decided to execute it was to do a couple of different things. The first one is really to find the metaverse um, in a sense. And as you noted, you know, there's this idea of NFT, Web3, things like that. But I wanted to maybe not take such a theoretical view of the metaverse and say, okay, what about the actual metaverse environments that are out there right now? And when people are saying, oh, we have a metaverse or place in the metaverse, you know, you talk to Sotheby's or Vice Media or something like that, what do they really mean? So there's really a handful of what of these more formalized metaverse environments that are out there. The most famous being Decentraland. Then you have Somnium Space, Mona, Roblox, Fortnite, you know, different things like that. So with those, we basically started playing in the metaverse. 
and started to understand what are the strengths associated with each one. Are they public? Are they private? Do they support gaming? Uh, are they better for live entertainment? Things like that. Um, but then also the technology side of it, like, is it purely proprietary? Uh, their system for, say, like modeling components, what are the size limits associated with uh, them and things like that? And then from there, be able to, once we sort of digested the, the opportunities in each one of those metaverse, then look at, like you were saying, the tech stack. Like, how do we get into the, the metaverse? What is the normal pathway? And so it reminded me of my childhood and the, the choose your adventure books, right? You, right. You, you yes. say, oh, I want to do those. this. Then you got to do this and this and Flip this. Flip to this page, right? And yeah. Exactly. That was fun. And that's, that's <laughs> the metaverse, right? There isn't, there isn't a one path. It's not like buildings where you have schematic design, design development, that sort of thing. It, it depends on what your particular outcome was or had in had mind. But from that, we were able to actually relatively quickly define the tech stack that was involved. And what was interesting is not, it wasn't terribly foreign. You know, if you were a, um, an architect, there was actually a lot of the, the components that people are really familiar with. You know, people were using things like Vectorworks, Rhino, SketchUp, um, 3ds Max, things like that, that people were really familiar with. But then there was this whole other component where you had pieces that people weren't necessarily familiar with. You're using like, say, um, you know, Blender, which to some degree some people are familiar with, but like Unity, ZBrush, things like that, Maya. And, but when we looked at it and we took a step back, we thought, boy, architects are awfully close to understanding a lot of the technology stack associated with this. Um, so then it, it came down to really starting to understand how people that are in it right now got there. And what does their design methodology look like? How do they even say... Um, get the projects in the first place. So for a lot of people, that was always the question of like, how do I even meet the right people and things like that? So we did a deep dive into understanding what are the social networks that people are a part of that allows for them to even meet um, people within the metaverse and things like that. Um, and then we closed out with what we think the, the future may look like, because one of the big discoveries was that these traditional metaverse environments, when people think of the metaverse and these very defined places that are out there, like I say, Decentraland being a good, prime example is that the graphics are pretty poor um it's like if you play video games in the 80s you'll feel comfortable and and when you think about where say video games are now or the quality of of visual immersion that's possible in architecture um, during the design process you know it's incredible right it, it's almost photo real or sometimes it's almost more real than real and yet what you saw in this metaverse environment wasn't that so then we talked to a lot of folks who were moving to essentially work further apart from these traditional metaverse environments so they can deliver that type of visual quality that they wanted, that they knew was possible, but wasn't possible in the traditional metaverse. So we're actually seeing uh, this separate movement away from these traditional metaverse environments, people creating their own spaces for immersion and interaction, whether it be for business or entertainment. Interesting. And then there's this whole idea of ownership and there's this layer of like, like staking property, uh, investing. There's so many other kind of financial incentives or <laughs> disincentives, depending on who you are, why you may want to look at something versus not. That's what's interesting to me as well is just kind of the, the names who are getting involved that not on the architectural side, but like Tony Hawk, I just saw it. They're, they're going to build 
a metaverse, you know, give you the ability to build skate parks and kinds of stuff like that in the metaverse. You've got Snoop Dogg in the metaverse. I think he's in, is he in Sandbox or Decentraland? I can't even remember. Uh, I think, one of them. Yeah, I think he's in Sandbox. Sandbox. I, yeah, I'm not sure. So it's it's interesting to kind of think about, you know, who who do you align with in different ways and why might you be attracted to go to a, one I don't know. It's all the metaverse, but one versus the other, these kind of destinations in the metaverse, right? Well, there's two big factors, as you noted right there, is do you, the cost. And that's one of the things that I think was a little humbling for me when I first went in there. I thought, let's just buy a plot of land and decentralized land and build something. You know, there's no better way than to do it. And then we quickly found out that we couldn't afford a plot of land in this until it was given our budget. You weren't early. You weren't a pioneer. Yeah. No, not at all. Right. And so that was a, a big factor. But then that was, you're absolutely right about this idea of the, what do you want to achieve? And so one of the things that we found, like, for instance, if you wanted to have something that really had great visual quality, that maybe was a digital twin, so to speak, of a high-end home. You really couldn't use any of those established metaverse environments because the file size that they supported was so small. Like I think it was in Decentraland, they supported something like for one plot, you could get 40,000 polys, essentially a shape. And like we have, you know, I've seen chairs in an architectural rendering that's got more than that going on. Sure. So, well, it was always kind of a, a feat of strength, right? For a software package to be able to tell how many polys it would support in, a, in an image. And now you see things like uh, Unreal, right, with their, what is it, Nanite technology, where it's, yeah, I mean, just you don't even need to worry about counting the polys anymore, right? So It's, it's phenomenal, really. It is. And it's so to kind of think about this from all these different angles and what architects are used to doing. I, I remember w- when I was learning 3D, our goal was to make low poly models because polygons were expensive during rendering. And that's not necessarily the case. And that's definitely why games, I was going to say, it's not necessarily the case anymore. But when you move into game engines, when you talk about real-time rendering, which obviously you're an expert in, this is this has been a topic, a main topic for a long time. And it's becoming less and less of a one. But it, that's one of the reasons why we're seeing low fidelity graphic quality in a lot of these places, right? Is because of the technology behind the visualization of the things that people are making and putting into those places. So it's polygons and texture maps and lighting. Exactly. And, and that technology is such that the change is unlikely um, is, is one of the things to note with that, given the way they're structured. Because they're not going to go back and rebuild it. Yeah, they would have exactly. to at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It would okay. have to be a complete re- rebuild. And then the other component I think that's challenging too, is that they're, a lot of the reason why it looks like that, like I say, it's it's the amount of computational power that's required and minimizing that, but also the number of people that they want to have in these spaces jointly. So, you know, if you, you want these bigger crowds and things like that, you know, that's a lot of complexity to manage also. Um, so I, that's why, from my perspective, it was interesting to hear a lot of people saying, we're rejecting these traditional metaverse environments and want to create something our own. Like you're saying, you know, going to something that's much more of like something in unity where they're actually going to say Revit using DataSmith, bringing that model straight in there. And then they have the metaverse environment that they really wanted. But one of the things we did realize, you know, it's everyone likes to trot out a good Eames quote now and then. And when we found that <laughs> there was a lot of limitations, right? You know, there's a lot of these constraints um, in the context of these metaverse environments. You know, the, the poly count, like some of them, you can only 
you're building with you know these voxel environments, so you have these really limited shapes that you can work with and, and textures and things like that. Kind of Minecraft esque. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so constraints become opportunities in a lot of ways. And when we were talking with Vice Media, who worked with Big to develop their Vice First space, um, it was interesting to hear them talk about how Big slowly evolved its thinking about what was possible in the metaverse. Because when they developed their first model, it was in Rhino, and it was essentially like an architectural model. You know, it was that level of resolution. So they had stairs that a person could really walk up and things like that. And they're like, wait a second, you know. No one's walking upstairs. You're teleporting. Just has to represent it. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. It just has to represent an idea of some kind of a vertical circulation, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so there's these ways in which you can, yeah, exactly. You're just sort of manipulating these things that, you know, you're teleporting as opposed to walking and things like that. Uh, but you still have these constraints of the geometry, you know, the hardware. It's inherently is going to be um, a constraint on the user side. And then you also have the aesthetic constraints. You know, there's a, everything looks similar like you know when you go in and you see a decentraland image like each metaverse has its appearance style it's kind of like you know you just no mistake in a lego um you know it's the same thing with the metaverse you know they all have a certain vibe so to speak and for a lot of people they don't want that particularly as you start thinking about corporate campuses and things like that that people want you know they want their style yeah not the decentraland style yeah so that so it's it's splintering into many many more metaverses right in which it are different destinations that are digital and and you would maybe hop into one or hop into another like you would pop into a chat room back in the AOL days right and you might but you may not be able to say carry over your username and things like that and i think that's a little bit of the the piece that maybe is oversold on the value to consumers at least right now is the need for these metaverse environments to have sort of this seamless portability to you know, go from one place to another. And one of the more interesting conversations I had was with the design firm Interior Architects, IA, and they have a whole division that focuses on metaverse environments now. And apparently on a per-project basis, it's more profitable than traditional work, uh, which is rather interesting. <laughs> Less risky too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, no one's getting... No one's going to sue you for a health, safety, and welfare um, issue, at least not that we know of yet. But And there's no gravity, and there's there's all of these kind of, I don't know. No mold risk. Yeah, yeah no mold. <laughs> That's in your own house where you're wearing your goggles. Uh, it's interesting to think about it from a, well, maybe we should step back and just take, you know, take away the magnifying glass for a minute and talk about the overall vision of even why, why are we even talking about the metaverse? Uh, I'm sure that part of your research kind of got into that and the, and these the various companies with various visions of what that what it's going to offer people and why they would want to spend time there you know they we did talk about that a lot with the people that we interviewed and the best answer that we got the one that really galvanized it for me was saying that the metaverse is a three-dimensional website that's essentially what it is and so do you see value in traditional websites? You know, sort of yes or no. Well, then would you see more value in a three-dimensional website? And once I put that lens on it, to begin the understanding, the idea that, you know, traditional web experience versus one where it truly is immersive, then it really started to click for me. Um, and I think a lot of companies are seeing that, you know, if you look at it, say, from a corporate perspective and internal corporate management, say you have um, you know, your employee portal. For say HR or 
payroll, things like that, or maybe even just you know teams and data file and storage. How does that function versus something that would you'd say was 3D? And would there be benefits associated with that type of, of environment for that type of functionality? And I think most people would say, yes, you know, it's easier to navigate in a lot of ways in the real world, if you could, than to, to do so purely through these 2D environments. And then you say you apply the same thinking to commerce. And is it easier to look at a web page where you're looking at, say, um, a bunch of different furniture options, you know, just these icons on each one? And maybe you can rotate them. Or would it be better to go into an environment where it really is immersive? You can actually walk around it. It can be virtually staged in the environment if you're choosing and things like that. So once I started to wrap my head around this idea of a website in three dimensions, it became pretty remarkable. And especially when we were talking with um, in the context of media outlets, and they were saying that here's an idea where you can take a story and you know maybe you have a long form story that people are still reading. But then think of the the way in which you can say present artifacts that relate to the story. You know, this is a story maybe about the conflict in Ukraine. You can have someone that could actually go into an, a 3D environment and actually see a javelin, see how the component components of it, how does it function, things like that. And the capacity for that level of engagement you just can't get through 2D media. So for me, that's the big value in a lot of ways. I obviously a lot of people are seeing some interesting value that that may evince itself in the context of um, it's like the seamless operability and this global connectedness, or as you were saying, like the removal of gravity and those types of constraints. You know, you can make it whatever you want. But I think in a lot of ways, it's really about that immersion as a yeah, big part of it. It really makes sense from a commerce standpoint to create an experience around the commodities or the the objects that are on display. And that, you know, it's thinking about it from a website perspective, there's this idea of experiential design. UI UX from in a 2D world is very different than user experience in a 3D world, and this is where the link becomes clear to architecture, right? And to interior architecture. If people are spending 90% of their time indoors, and I would argue that when they're indoors, most of their time is in front of a screen looking at a two-dimensional thing, scrolling, whether it's doom scrolling or scrolling for other reasons, right? But it's when you're scrolling through Amazon or Etsy or Nike or whatever, you are, you're looking at stuff and it's kind of flying by versus having that immersive experience I, I almost said real experience but but that's i think a debatable word when we're talking about this it, to to experience those things those objects in the environment that somebody wants to affect you in a mo- on an, an emotional level in a much more useful way than they can through a traditional web page design right exactly i mean if, if that factor didn't matter then no one would bother with brick and mortar stores anymore for instance but clearly, it still it still does matter. I think the other component that is going to be particularly compelling in the area of commerce is the opportunity for interaction. You know, it's social interaction, maybe you know, shopping with other people. You know, for instance, like my sister is a um, a great arbiter of style when it comes to um, making sure I don't make any poor decisions. Um, and <laughs> do having her shop in. with me, yeah, exactly, <laughs> it would be amazing, right? And then, and similarly, when you think about the opportunity for say, someone to actually help you, you know, someone to, to show you different products and, and talk you through different items. 
you, you can't do those things with a chat bot necessarily um, effectively, but you can in the context of these immersive environments. And I think we've experienced, I know I have experienced this. I don't know if, if everybody has, it depends how you maybe consume media and the news, but like there are certain stories that will show up on the New York Times website or the Wall Street Journal. Where it's not just a web page. It's next level stuff, right? It, the, oh yeah, parallel the, coordinates and all that sort of thing. Yeah. The things that are happening on that page and that are revealed as the story unfolds uh, can be done in a very incredible way. The way that they present information, data, charts even, is can be way better than a static two-dimensional image that, you know, it just gives... There, there are technologies even in the 2D website world that lend themselves to better storytelling and immersion. And that is just pales in comparison to the things I think that we could imagine would be possible in a place like the metaverse or in a three-dimensional website, right? Like you said, if I wanted to, if it's a story about Neanderthals or whatever, and, and, and then I get to hold the tools virtually that they used to get from here to there, right? That would be an immersive, incredible experience that I really wouldn't be able to, I would just have to imagine it otherwise, right? I wouldn't, we wouldn't even have the same experience, you and I, whereas we would then have a shared experience by through a, through a means of conveying that information on a three-dimensional website. I mean, I love that image. I'm actually thinking right now, you always talk about them hunting mastodons or something like that. You think of, you know, what exactly was the relationship and size between them and the mastodon? Um, and the, the visceral reaction you could get if one showed up, right? In, yeah. in the, because I mean, it reminds me of this, this, uh, YouTube channel. I think it was like elderly react and it was, and it was the elderly reacting to VR, the one that I saw and they put them in these, uh, different VR scenarios. So they had a vibe that they put on their face and, and, uh, there was a, a wide range of people in this group. There was elderly men and women and different races. And it was really interesting to see how they reacted to different things. And obviously it was very personality driven, right? It was like, put them on a roller coaster. Okay. Some people love roller coasters and some people hate them. Okay. Now put them in a zombie apocalypse. And, and so we're seeing how they're reacting to that environment. Some are cowering in fear, like going down into fetal position on the floor. And the other ones are pulling out their guns, just having the time of their life shooting zombies. Right. And so, but those emotions were real in both cases, and that is how immersive it can be. And I think a lot of people eschew this idea of being in a virtual environment because they haven't tried it yet. And like, I know for, I've seen it firsthand where there's people who, who just write it off. And then when they do it, they're like, I've been missing this. This is amazing. Like I'm never going to not design as an architect. I'm not going to not use this tool anymore. This is going to become a primary decision-making tool as I develop design. And to go from one extreme to the other, it's just like all it took was an experience to do that, but it actually took an experience, not just the armchair kind of perspective and keeping it at arm's length. So one question I would ask in that context then is, do you think that there's a fear uh, in sort of the, the resistant group that's out there that it can sort of cheapen reality in, Absolutely. in some ways? Absolutely. I think there, it, and it's probably even deeper than that. It's like, to to be able to create something so emotionally effective if it's really like if we're really talking about architecture like in a very pure sense right that's what architecture can do 
four people or two people, depending on <laughs> how you're using it. But it's it's one of those things where it's like you now it's the we're focusing on the tool, not the people who created the space, like the 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 all powerful architect in podcasting air quotes, right? It's kind of taking something away from the agency of the individual because we're all focused on the experience happening in the tool. When like thinking long term, if they're really going to build that building or have that even metaverse building, you know, uh, it's it's no one's going to think of the architect then either. But they did create that experience. So I think it's just part of like, I'm not in the loop anymore. I'm not in control. There's a fear there. There's an obsolescence fear. I think there's a lot of psychology going on behind the scenes. So I, I mentioned earlier that there weren't the same health, safety and welfare considerations necessarily for designing the metaverse. But Maybe there are. Yeah. Maybe there are, right? When you think about that, that emotional um, mental health, you know, yeah, yeah, right. mental health. You talk about people cowering or whatnot. You know, that's an emotional response. I mean, that is health in a lot of ways. And um, so, obviously, when you think about the the importance of of designers or architects having that oath, you know, to uphold the health, safety, and welfare, you really need to have something similar in the context of these metaverse environments in many ways. They need to be have ratings like movies or video games potentially. Yeah, exactly. And some kind of warning. Some kind of warning, right? You know, is this going to be the uh, Boston City Hall or is this going to be, um, you know, something else that's a little bit lighter fare? You know, the Fairy Tale Cottage. But it is an important consideration, and it may be one of the reasons why there needs to be a component of intentionality on the part of people who are designing these spaces to understand that you're going to have an emotional response. But that emotional response also has a lot of benefit because it gives that engagement on the part of the user. So you talk about learning. So you learn a lot more, of course, when you're when you're excited and engaged. And that was one of the interesting things we found is that a lot of companies started these efforts as internal exercises around training and onboarding for employees. And they were starting to see so much engagement and excitement around them that they were beginning to say, okay, this actually could be a great outward facing opportunity. And so they're saying, okay, let's go to, to phase two of what something like this might look like. But you think of the training, it makes a lot of sense to have that emotional engagement. It does. It does. I mean, how many times have you had to watch some video because it was required to watch it versus maybe an entirely different experience that would actually engage you? Because one of the things about putting on the goggles and being in in this environment is it really truly is blinders to everything all the other distractions in the world right whereas right now i'm talking to you i could be looking something up on the web i could be checking my email i'd There's be a impressed chat. but yes <laughs> there's all these things going on yeah. right uh we everybody tunes out to some regard during any number of calls video presentations whatever uh, that is way less likely to happen when you've got a fully immersive experience. And if the experience is amazing, you would not even be tempted <laughs> to buy those yeah, it'd other be your things. your preference to do that. Yeah. Right. So, and I do think that, you know, it's, it's interesting to kind of think about it from a architectural perspective. I, I don't know if you've been watching, uh, like one of the hashtags that I keep track of is mid journey. So there's a lot of uh, people using mid journey, which is an AI that is, uh, using uh, text prompts to produce imagery like Dali. Yeah, we actually had a fun call the other other day internally where people were showing some images they created. And and I've been looking at some that are, you know, people have been tuning the prompts that they give mid journey to create the imagery. And some of the stuff just looks absolutely 
mind-blowing, incredible. And, and they're coming at it kind of from an architect's perspective of creating space, whether it's interior, whether it's architecture, whether it's full cityscapes. And the imagery is absolutely incredible. Now, granted, it's a two-dimensional image. There's no three-dimensional anything to it. But I think we can see the convergence on a time frame that that's going to happen. If I could inhabit those spaces that I'm seeing people produce, well, I'm seeing AI produce now, but through the prompting of people who are taking on the, when people are like, this is an amazing image, and the people are saying, thank you. It's like, (laughs) well, how much did you actually contribute to that? It is favorable. I would want to be there. I would want to experience that. And you know what? I'd never have to dust it, right? I wouldn't have to maintain it. I wouldn't have to worry about the electric bill in that space or in that thing. And I think that when you see images like that, it it does start to tell a compelling story of a of a place I would want to spend time in, right? Fully. But there are, there's a remarkable opportunity for them to be truly ephemeral as well. You know, it's like almost like a dream. You know, it's a it's a prompt. It's it's real. It's rendered in real time in a sense. You inhabit it. You have it space that you're in. You can see what you can see around you, and then it's just it's gone. And I think it also, like the promise of tech like that in particular, gives people agency to manipulate it as they're experiencing it, potentially. I think that that's part of what makes architecture architecture is that it affects people in a way that uh, buildings, you know, general background buildings do not. And when people have agency in the creation process of that, uh, that's an interesting dynamic, right? And I think really great architects. They either don't allow that at all and they create their masterpiece, right? The the Frank Lloyd Wright version, right? Where it's like he he was the master of all things in that versus people who are very involved in the process and the ownership of that project is way higher because they were a part of it. Um, I could see this kind of virtual world having the ability to include my, you know, if I'm not an architect, my thoughts and feelings about what this space could be like based on my agency in that space to uh, just adapt it in real time. It's a remarkable conceit on a couple of levels. One of them is that it may be a position where the architect isn't delivering a design, but they're rather delivering the machine or the tool for someone to create that framework. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a pretty remarkable shift, but in a lot of ways, it's something that would never have been possible before, but would be possible under that that framework. So it's, I, I love that idea, although that's a, quite a challenge, I think, for many designers. It's almost like you're you're a game creator at that point than anything else, or an environment creator, as opposed to uh, delivering a set fixed environment. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. You've already heard a lot about Avail as a longtime sponsor of the show, but wait, this is a new message for you, distinguished listener of the Troxel podcast. We can't talk about Avail's latest desktop release without talking dynamic paths. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, of course you do. Dynamic paths allow BIM managers to store data in BIM 360, OneDrive, or any other cloud solution. In the latest version of Avail, they expand on location agnostic, making content easier and faster to find for the user. Imagine not having to worry if the content is on a local network drive or in the gazillion cloud storage locations. How is this even possible? Pure magic. It's the stuff of unicorns and rainbows, my friends. Let's keep this just between you and me. Here's some of the details. Following on the promise of being content agnostic, Avail now makes location complexity a thing of the past. 
content is more than Revit. It ranges from Rhino to AutoCAD to Office documents. Well, this is next level. We're talking network locations. Have you ever seen one location where all the project content lives? Snap out of it. Of course you haven't. Content can live anywhere from the local network to BIM 360 to OneDrive to any other cloud location. Why does this matter? Well, good thing there are no dumb questions. Because the answer is that it frees up users to concentrate on design, which pays the bills, and getting content into a project, not managing technical issues around network drives and paths. Let's face it, they aren't that good at that anyway. Avail's mission is to make finding content simpler and easier. Like our favorite architect Louis Kahn once asked, Data, where do you want to live? I don't think he really asked that question, but Avail allows teams to, so let's just roll with it. And hold the phone. For those of you who know what this means, Avail also supports federated data requirements. Data can live where it needs and must live, allowing users secure and simple access to it. So what's the takeaway? What's the big picture here? Settle down. I have it right here. Avail is a platform that connects all types of data from all types of locations, hiding complexity. Try it today. Go to getavail.com to learn more. And now let's get back to our conversation. But the other component that is interesting is it's bringing to mind a comment that the, one of the uh, former CEO of Chaos Group, you know, that it's now it's, it's merged with Enscape, um, Peter Matev was saying that he sees a dark future in a lot of ways um, with the potential for manipulation. And that's what's interesting here is when you think about once you start to sort of give up that that control, that agency to that AI engine that is able to create these these dreamscapes that you're responding to emotionally. Is there opportunities to embed within that logic, unbeknownst to you as the consumer, um, layers of manipulation? And what would the what are the appropriate fail-safes that could be implemented in that context? And if you don't believe that that's possible, just look at Google or Facebook now, right? Like there was a time when before those where you felt like okay yahoo or whatever was just a directory right it was it was a hierarchical directory of things on the internet and then google flipped that on its head and just said it's all there just just if if you type in the right word we're going to give you the results well guess what giving the results is a manipulation in what order and we've seen google do that more and more and more and more you know like I know that there's been lawsuits between Yelp and Google, right? Where Google will favor their results over a Yelp result, for instance, right? And so it's been training people for a long time now to trust the Google machine, right? Whatever Google gives you, if it's not on that first page, it kind of doesn't exist, right? And that first page is highly gamified, right? There's incentives that I'm not aware of as a, yeah, Absolutely. And, and it's trained us to trust it, right? So very much a, a reality, I think, that has to be kind of dealt with as we move into this space, because it, it can be, uh, it can be, there is potential for manipulation easily, right? And companies have every incentive in the world to do that, because we, in a capitalistic society, growth is all that matters, right? So what does it take to grow? So you'd really do kind of have to have the ethic of 
what you're talking about, I think, is especially as architects who are responsible for people's health, safety, and welfare, the problem is, is all the other people out there who don't have that oath, <laughs> right? Who are willing to do whatever it takes. Well, it's like the same thing, though. Would you want to go into a building that had never, uh, wasn't designed by an architect, didn't have uh, stamped engineering drawings and things like that? You know, you see what happens in earthquakes in some countries that they don't have that same type of infrastructure, and it's terrifying. So it's, you can see a, a an obligation or maybe an opportunity within that context. But the other side of it is also how do we create that informed um, user group? So we think about, you know, if you go into a building, a great building, and maybe it elicits an emotional response, but someone that maybe has um, a classical education or maybe a docent introduce them to this building, they understand why they feel the way they feel, or maybe where the precedence of the design that led to its final, the outcome that you're seeing. Maybe there's also an obligation on the part of, of us as the consumers as we move into this more immersive environment with the opportunity for emotional manipulation to, to be educated ourselves and be aware of, of how if, what levers are being pulled. How does it feel to know that those levers are being pulled? Maybe it's hard. You know, good manipulation, it's like a con game. You, know, you don't know what's happening. But I would think that there's still some obligation on our part to be informed consumers or, or informed uh, metaverse citizens, so to speak. Yeah, you're right. Well, I think that that part of the conversation could go on forever, but I would love to get into kind of this, you know, the tool stack that you talked about for architects. And obviously there are many different destinations and they kind of, I assume, kind of require their own stack to get into. So Maybe just like a start with a high level overview of what are the major players. Uh, you mentioned some of them already: Maya, 3ds Max, SketchUp, Rhino, whatever. But there's there's more to it than just modeling, right? There's there's so many other pieces to it. There's definitely some more to it than modeling. So what we did is actually wasn't terribly complex. It we started like I said uh, with the multiple choice um, or the choose your own adventure book, so to speak. So what we found in this context is you know, we started off, what is the first question you need to be asking yourself? And I think the first one is, is this a private metaverse or a public metaverse, so to speak? Um, and the private ones, you can, there's ones where people are truly creating their own spaces. But we went to, okay, these are established metaverse environments. So once you've made that particular decision, um, then it goes into, let's say if you're going into private, there's really at this point only one that we found that's that's fairly large and often used, and that's Mona. And Mona is one in, in which it supports actually a fairly large file size, and it also allows basically um, anything that's an FBX or an OBJ file as an input. So that opens up a pretty large um, opportunity as far as file imports. Kind of doesn't matter what you model in at that point. Exactly. So that's one where, like I said, you're seeing digital twins of high-end homes and things like that. You're seeing those sort of these private metaverses that come along with the house that you just bought, the real house that you bought, or the physical house. So that's one where that's a, a fairly simple mechanism that they have in place. That particular environment, the Mona environment, though, doesn't necessarily have a sort of a the high level of interaction operability that comes with a more gamified environment, though. But it becomes in it's almost like a um, sort of a, a cloud hosted rendered version of your home or something like that. But let's say you want something that was more public, then it goes into, well, do you want to have a, a system with land ownership or do you want to have one in which actually you don't own any land? 
um, but you're just more or less like creating um, an environment on the servers that are owned by, by one of these other entities. So let's say you do want to go with land ownership routes. So that's places where you're trying to get into like uh, Decentraland, Somnium space and things like that. Then there's a decision that one needs to make about the, the type of modeling quality that they necessarily want. Do they want a non-voxel style or do they want a voxel style, you know, the much more blocky type spaces that you're saying, like the Minecraft kind of spaces. And so once they make those particular decisions, you actually have proprietary building applications that are used within those environments. So um, oftentimes the people that we spoke to will use, say, Rhino to model things on a conceptual level. Um, to understand how it looks, to share that. But then when it comes to actually modeling, they have to use these sandbox-like environments within the game environments themselves to to create these spaces. And what was interesting for us is you wouldn't think that there would be a place for um, something like Enscape in the context of um, these these metaverse environments because you know, you're, you're using these proprietary modeling platforms and whatnot. But the challenge is that you're building in one platform, but it's going to exist in the metaverse. So how is it actually going to look once it's deployed in this metaverse environments? And people didn't know, like, well, how's my neighbor going to reflect off of, of what I have? You know, the colors change a little bit and things like that. So there's actually this need for a real-time rendering solution, which kind of surprised us. Because it helps you make, like we talked about this in the last time we talked, which was that you're making decisions using a tool like Enscape during design now that didn't present themselves until much later in the process before, right? When you actually got to final renderings or when you got to actually building the building, uh, now you actually have the ability to make decisions because of the color that the building next to you is going to reflect onto yours or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So when I went to our, our product management team, I said, hey, you know, I have this idea about uh, potentially having the ability to to render in real time, you know, not just like what your building would look like, not in like the real world, but in say, you know, these, these various metaverses and, um, you know, their hair just basically instantly went gray. They're thinking, oh my gosh, each one has its own proprietary visualization platform they're using, you know, rule sets and all that. But, uh, you know, small market, but interesting concept. But the challenge that those have is that there's, it's, you do have a limited amount of um, files that could be imported. So you could say have a, a GTF or a GLB file could be imported, but there's a 15 uh, megabyte per parcel limit to these things. So, I mean, it's like, it's tiny. So that's one of the reasons why most of them end up building inside those proprietary design tools as a result. But you can also, if you want to start operating some level of interactivity, you can use a Unity SDK. And you can use that with the GLB file format to start to bring in a certain level of intelligence into um, that model that you're going to have. Can you give some examples of what the different levels of intelligence might be like? Um, yeah, so some of them might be like the like you maybe will be approaching an object, and like we saw one where it's kind of like a red pill and the blue pill kind of a thing. You know that sort of idea. Um, there's ones where you might have, um, say, uh, clothing that you could, say, um, you know, interact with, potentially even, say, try on as an NFT and things like that. So there's a little more like game type type pieces that they would have. So what we're finding, by and large, is that they're starting with these modeling phases fairly early on with the modeling tools that architects are familiar with, Rhino, Revit, SketchUp, things like that. And then they're going to the modeling tools that are a little bit more aligned and compatible with the file formats that you're going to see as being able to be imported into 
the metaverse environment. So that's Blender, 3ds Max, Maya, ZBrush. And then you're going into the next phase, which is starting to um, add in the interactivity component. So that would be like the Unity TypeScript is typically what people are using. And then you have um, some components that are then either you can bring that directly in or you do that with a hybrid with those metaverse world specific builders at that point, depending upon what they what your file size is and things like that or how tolerant you are of those particular builders, like things like Roblox, you're going to do much more of it within their builder, for instance, and things like that. So you can see the first part of that stack is things that designers are pretty familiar with. You know, um, it just starts to fall off as you get into things like Unity, TypeScript, you know, Maya, things like that. But a lot of firms have developers or you know, visualization teams who are familiar with those tools. And so they're going to potentially have a leg up because they are creating experiences. They're creating the ability for clients to go into a hospital space and move furniture around and change the color of the walls and in tools like that. And exactly. And that's, yeah, they're creating metaverse environments. Right. They are. Yeah. They're just not pushing them to these formal metaverse spaces at this stage. But I, I, I would not be surprised. And given the firms that we've talked to, there's real money in, in creating these metaverses that are not part of these larger structured traditional metaverse environments, you know, so they are able to leverage those those technology stacks that they have in house. Usually, a small specialist team that's using those tools, um, but they're able to leverage them to deliver products for their clients that they really want, both for that are employee facing, internally facing, for onboarding, training, you know, meeting spaces, and then now it's starting to emerge as um, customer facing. Yeah. There's a whole topic of conversation here around what we're delivering and what the value of that is as well, right? And that we're not broaching that subject. Maybe we will. I don't know if you have thoughts on it, but this is not this is not part of the traditional standard of care, deliverables, any of those things. So like this, we're talking about way more specific or custom deliverables in this in this sense is in relation to the it's much more of a service offering a long-term service offering yeah and so when it comes to putting value to these kinds of things i mean maybe that maybe it's yet to be seen but i'm i'd be interested in hearing if you have any kind of initial thoughts on that because i think that's part of the 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 hurdle that many architects who've been around for a long time have to get over or maybe they never will but it's like okay that's just messing around that's a game that this is i do the i do the real thing over here but but we're actually talking about being able to deliver something of potential value at least to some segment of people and then i'm i'm just interested what your initial thoughts are on that so my there's a couple of pieces of my initial thoughts one of them that was fairly interesting is speaking with some of the designers that are starting to deliver buildings in this space they say that when they are working on these metaverse environments, they're either internally facing or externally facing for a particular company. Their client, their client group at that company is the C-suite. They're talking to the CEO or what have you. Like They're not talking to someone lower down in facility management or what have you. So I think when you think of where the value is, at least on the part of the, the customer side, they see an enormous value there. Um, to the degree to which you're actually having people who usually are not involved in building projects are now being, or are involved in website projects are now being involved. Um, to flip it around the other way, what is the value potentially to architecture firms 
as far as you know, revenue opportunities. So same before, you know, where there's a IA is already seeing this on a per project basis being more profitable than traditional projects because not only is it you know you you don't necessarily have all of the the various subs that are coming in you know all these various uh, contractors or what have you that are, are providing additional services so you get to keep more of the fee but then it's also a relationship you know you, you these are not a one and done type thing these require constant maintenance whether it be on the technical side or just maintaining the proprietary servers that are running this particular piece of, of um, software. So these are long-term relationships, which have a lot of value. And typically those long-term relationships are also ones that can be leveraged to develop real buildings as well, or real projects at the same time. Um, as far as the cost um, or revenue that, that's being seen here, you know, we're seeing it really all across the board. I think it depends on the, the scale and scope, but just from the traditional metaverse environments like Decentraland, the type of fees that we were seeing or we were quoted were um, around that of a traditional complex website. So, you know, maybe 80, 100,000 plus, and some of them get into multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars were the types of fees in total that people were seeing. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily insignificant. That's really interesting. I, I, I see that becoming more and more a topic of conversation, right? This is the kind of thing where if architects are kind of pre-positioned to be successful in this because of the psychological, emotional, spatial uh, pieces to this puzzle uh, and the expertise that we have in that, you are delivering value in addition to what you would do as a, a, a typical service or in lieu of, because maybe it doesn't lead to uh, your traditional deliverable at all. I think that's really interesting to think about. It's interesting to also think that a client would spend, you know, six figures on something that is just in the digital realm. But I think this also kind of starts to get into the conversation. And I don't, I don't know that we'll go there here today either, but ownership of, of things that are digital. There's a big blurry gradient here of ownership. You know, I, I went, of course, I did the same thing. I was one of the, the primary questions I asked various folks about that. And it's like, who owns these designs? Um, you know, who owns? And a lot of it, of course, you know, there's certain components of this code and whatnot that you might want to redeploy on subsequent projects and things like that. Um, and that was a, a, a particular topic that no one wanted to touch with a 10-foot pole. Um, so it was clear that it's not fully resolved. It's interesting to think about clients who ask for certain software to be used in the creation of their project when it's like these, you know, who cares is, a, is another way to answer that. <laughs> it's like you asked for this final thing. Here it is. How do, you don't you sh shouldn't care how I got there. But then when you start to think about facilities management and all those things, then that becomes more of a topic that that matters. Yeah. But at this stage, it's too loose. You know, it's it's too much being defined. And I think if you were to go to anyone who is designing a space now and maybe three years from now, it'll be a completely different technology stack. You know, this isn't like, oh, we're using Rhino to Revit, you know, Navisworks. I mean, it's it's really established, right? It's here, it's much more fluid. And I think part of that gets down to the fact that this is pushing up against these limits of technology, whether it be the rendering technology, the computational power, um, all those sort of things that are constantly being improved. I, I do think about firms who have a large body of work. And one of the ways in which they are currently selling that work or marketing that work is just on their website. 
right? And so to kind of get back to this idea of a three-dimensional website and to think about how you could enhance the experience of somebody that could lead to a, a real building project or a or a uh, metaverse building project, potentially, as it were, too. It really gives us the ability to communicate on a completely different level uh, what we're capable of and what our ideas, how they make you feel, and the kinds of experiences you can have when you hire us to do your architecture. It seems like there's a huge opportunity there, but uh, I don't necessarily think that we're well, we as the royal we, the, the profession is equipped to create those kind of experiences by default, but that's just another layer that we should be thinking about and, and potentially dealing with, right? I could see large firms definitely being kind of on the leading edge, maybe not bleeding edge of that uh, that movement, right? Because they do have more bespoke roles in their company on the technology side. Well, that was one of the interesting things for us in this overall research and, and eventual um, presentation was how do we get into the metaverse for architects? And one of the first things we said is you need to have an example of the work. And we said exactly what you're saying, create your own environment, whether it be in one of these formal metaverse places, or maybe you're one that is um, is separate from it, but yeah, exactly. Make your own space. And so there, all of a sudden you have a great example that you can show every client and say, hey, this is something I can deliver. Yes, I'm doing this traditional building for you, but I have this as well. And to me, it's rather fascinating that that hasn't been leveraged as a mechanism for validating your, your capacity within this. Because it's like the same thing. Who's, it's, I know it's very hard for new architecture firms to get hired without a portfolio of work, obviously. It's the same thing here. You know, if you don't have a portfolio of work, then how do you how do you get that first job? So it has to be an investment in developing your own space first. But with so many firms that are doing, say, hybrid work environments, or as you were saying, a much more immersive way of experiencing the body of a firm's work. I mean, I'm already thinking of going in, seeing a beautiful vitrine with the model for the project. Then look at the walls, you know, see some images, maybe some over 360 panels that you could step in and walk or look around in. I mean, you can make a pretty incredible immersive environment um, for an architectural firm's body. Yeah. And there's, I mean, you could take it and you can take it way beyond that, right? Like to me, that's what's so interesting about the metaverse and its uh, relationship with the real world. Uh, I had a, a guest on the podcast, Jason Gardner, who works at Populous, and they're looking at ways to engage fans that that don't go to the game. There's there's new tech out there. I, we we talked about it on the show. Uh, this video that was shown on LinkedIn, where every player on the field is continually tracked, and every the ball is also tracked, and they're using motion control cameras, tracking, and all these things to also deliver a virtual experience where. I could be at home, not there at the stadium, and I can actually be walking on the field as the game is going on. I mean, what soccer fan wouldn't want to experience that? And maybe, maybe it's not, it could be, it could be better than being there in the nosebleed section, right? Uh, so very different experiences, not to say one replaces to the other, but they're, they're potentially complementary, especially when you take location out of the scenario, right? So if I'm looking for a firm for a project in Southern California, I'm no longer limited to Southern California, Southern California firms because I could inhabit the buildings of any architect anywhere who could potentially deliver a project based on their qualifications here and not have to go visit their building in Indiana, right, to actually get that experience to do it. 
And I think that that just kind of opens up this location agnostic practice idea that I think because of remote and hybrid work and because like, the, the pandemic taught us, right? Like you actually don't need to be locked to a location to do this kind of work. And now you don't have to be locked to a location for the firm that you choose to do the work, right? It really can be based on the ideas and what that firm can actually deliver and how it makes the people who are the users of the building feel because they've been able to experience it already. They know you can deliver it. I think that there's so much potential there. And if you put it on an open platform like you're talking about, then then yeah, you're, everybody gets to experience it. Exactly, everyone gets to experience it. And I, the the idea of a um, an office space that one could inhabit, uh, whether it be for you know, meetings internally or alternatively to show clients, it would be a pretty remarkable way of, of building a cultural bond as well. And in education, my my mind is racing right now. <laughs> education, like architectural history class, right? If you had the ability to experience, I would remember so much more about my architectural history class if I experienced those places that were in the slide carousel that I slept through almost every class. Oh yeah. Now, not only experience them, but maybe you could even say, take apart a wall and see that the nature of the actual assembly of some of these things, you know, the, the fill or you know, the old boats that were sort of thrown down and built on top of used as fill and in London and things like that. It, it would, would be incredible. It would. It, it, there was a, a small conference that I went to and uh, the topic was reality capture. There's some firms out there doing reality capture that pr- then provide the assets for some of the things we were talking about earlier, like the javelin idea or the mastodon, right? Or a spacesuit, or, you know, the Smithsonian has this huge collection that this company has been contracted to scan as much as they possibly can. And if you go onto Google and you search for Neil Armstrong spacesuit, like you're going to actually see a 3D model of that spacesuit that has been 3D scanned. And so this kind of bridging of reality and digital and our ability to interact in immersive ways and see things that I cannot go see. I can't see the Smithsonian's entire collection, right? They have some of it. They have a small portion of it on display in their museum in Washington, D.C. But the archives are enormous. And for us to have access to that kind of information, I think, is another way to think about this kind of thing, right? Where how many designs have firms done that didn't end up getting built that were mind-blowing they're amazing right i think that there's still a way to communicate what you're capable of and you're not limited by the rules of you know reality (laughs) so it does seem like there's tons of potential there's tons of potential and you know you also we started off this conversation talking about um some people that were experiencing vr for the first time and their emotional reaction and one of the things i've as we all get older and then the people we love get older as well, um, we're starting to notice that there's a lot of things that don't get done in one's life. Life's too short, uh, whether it be for opportunities or what have you. Um, and the opportunity to to experience things through this type of medium could be a remarkable way of, of seeing more of the world and, and really creating connections between people that they simply can't because they're not able to have these shared experiences right now. But there's an opportunity through these types of environments and creating these environments for for shared experiences, you know, be able to see great cultural artifacts from all over the world or, or cultural venues that you, you simply can't. Like, I, I don't know if I'll ever get to see the pyramids in, in Egypt, for instance, um, but that would be a phenomenal experience to be able to do that. Um, so I think that's one of the things that I also find so exciting about this is that there's this mechanism by which 
you can open up experiences that would otherwise be closed off. In the same way with office buildings, you know, there's some beautiful architecture that's happening now, but I don't get to go in because I don't have the right badge. Um, but, you know, and at least in Decentraland's um, meta, you know, space, there's the Sotheby Auction House. I mean, they wouldn't let me in, of course. I mean, what could I possibly buy? Um, but I'm able to walk in there. And if I can't go in, I just don't have access to it. You know, and there's something about that also that's really liberating, too. And that's one of the other pieces, things I really like about the metaverse is that it offers up this opportunity for all of us to get into that VIP access or to see behind. Or to the walk onto the field. Or walk onto the field, exactly, without getting yeah. arrested. <laughs> without having to take all your clothes off and for 10 seconds. That's right. it's, it's, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think these are all things that we should be thinking of as, as we are in a great place to take control, uh, not even take control, but just participate and contribute to this, uh, this thing that's going on and have a, a voice in, in where, how it gets developed, the kinds of ethical implications that there are, the kinds of value implications that there are for, for architects in this space as well. Uh, it, it's really interesting. So I, I appreciate the, the topic. Is there anything else that we should cover that we missed here? No, I think we really hit on all of the the key points. I I would only say that people shouldn't shy away from experimentation. You know, they have to recognize that there's not going to be a set path at this point. Um, so your best opportunity is just to go in and get your hands dirty. Um, you know, get on Discord, talk to some of the people that are already making and designing these spaces. Go in and explore some of these metaverse environments, um, and acknowledge the fact that there isn't going to be a textbook at this point. But there are uh, clear tools that are being used, and those are ones that are familiar to architects. So there's there's no reason to um, to shy away from this opportunity. Are there any Discord servers in particular that you would recommend as a starting point? You know, I can't say off the top of my head. I wish I was uh, that sharp with this right now, but I'm sorry. No, that seems like one of those things, though. It's like every Discord server out there is kind of you can't see it from another one. Right. And so kind of like these different metaverse destinations, I think it's, it's similar in that way. So, so maybe, maybe the most helpful tip we can give here is, is to actually do searches uh, online for metaverse and discord servers that where those kind of conversations are happening, because a lot of the, I'm sure there's a lot of knowledge that if I've noticed anything from communities who are on discord is they, they put a lot of effort into organizing frequently asked questions getting started kind of onboarding kinds of things because they don't want to keep answering the same questions. So they actually, unlike an architecture firm, <laughs> they're, they're very good at kind of knowledge capture and putting it into places where then you can spend a little bit of time reading before you start asking questions. But that gives you a great kind of onboarding first experience, at least a peek into what's going on there. So maybe that's the search is, is metaverse and discord servers. I think that would work well. And then maybe if there's an opportunity to provide a bit of information and go in some notes or something that goes along with this, um, I can send that to you afterwards. Yeah. The the show notes will have links to as many of the things that I can, that I've written down during our conversation so that people don't have to search for it themselves. So yeah, if you have other contributions to that, I'll be sure to include them. Absolutely. Well, Roderick, thanks so much. And uh, is there any new uh, Enscape news that we should be aware of? I would say that there's two big pieces that really have us excited. The first is, oh, well, obviously, um, 3.4, which is a, our first release that really focused on fixing bugs. Um, nice. So it's rare when you get an opportunity <laughs> to say, oh, there's big splashy features. New but, features, new features, new features. What about those bugs that I exactly. encountered? Exactly. So yeah. that's exactly what we did. We realized, you know, sometimes it's good to do a little bit of housekeeping. 
um, and focus on that. So that's a, a shift for us, and it's one that we think that our customers will really appreciate. Uh, we have, um, along with that, shortly thereafter, we released our first commercial version for Mac, which is SketchUp only at this point. It's a pretty big deal for us, um, not only because it it's a whole new platform, obviously, and a whole new world, which has been challenging. Mac is a different beast. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but it starts to open up also, um, and we're just going right into the development for other very Mac-focused platforms like Vectorworks and ARCHICAD. So that has us pretty excited as well because there's a lot of people for whom and a lot of industries are really heavy on Mac. Um, and so now we're going to be in a tap into those. The other thing, though, is that we have the, um, with the merger with Chaos, we're starting to really bear some fruit there. And so with the beta version of V-Ray that's out, there's actually now a bridge between um, Enscape and V-Ray. So you can export from Enscape, your render brings in um, and converts all of your Enscape materials into V-Ray materials and things like that. So it's really exciting to start to see that where people can start to get that, that photo reel, you know, that, that perfect image um, via that connection. So that's something where I would definitely encourage some people to get their hands on that beta version and give it a try. It's interesting because the whole, you know, V-Ray dominated the market for so long uh, as this kind of end of the phase rendering engine right it was the photorealistic the, it was the one that went on the job site sign it was the one that went on the website and and then we saw people who do the work really gravitate towards the real-time engines like enscape to visualize without the time cost the penalty of Which rendering significant can be it's significant. significant it can't yeah and so it totally makes sense to kind of get back to the point now where there is a rendering pipeline that goes because there are quality differentiators in rendering over time, right? There's, there's so you're telling that story over time and for, for you to be able to not have to start over in a different package. So you can convert and upgrade and, and just take it to the next level makes total sense. So that's cool. We're excited about it. And we're hoping that for a lot of people, it'll be, it'll lower that threshold of um, engagement when it comes to V-Ray. For a lot of firms, actually, we're finding that Enscape's perfect. They don't want to do anything more, uh, which is an interesting statement about how important is photo real um, in a lot of ways. Um, but I think something that I'm putting on us as a challenge is to really show the community the value of that increased quality potential. You know, it's a little bit like your iPhone camera. I mean, they're really good, but the pros use a DSLR for a reason, but we need to make that argument, I think, at least internally and, and make that justification. So it's a little bit of a marketing challenge on our part um, to actually prove that you you need that extra level of quality. So that's something I'm actually looking forward to doing and, and is showing our customer base that there's some value add to be had. Yeah, I definitely have thoughts on that, but I don't think they would be well received right now. I, I think that, you know, the thing that, that I think about when I, architects don't, mind not having to worry about that stuff anymore right all of those settings there was so and there was there was a vocabulary there that did not make it to the architectural side of things it was very much on the the viz side of things and and so if if that kind of thing is being addressed especially if i can get 70 80 percent of the way there in enscape and then just push it into this other package that helps me get that remaining. I, and there is value there that you can, you can prove to me. I think that would be fantastic. But like I said, I don't think most architects don't miss it at all because it was no. such a bear. It's yeah. a, uh, did a presentation about um, UI UX a while ago. And I had talked to our engineers internally about their philosophies. And, and basically from that, I created a slide that had 
three different images. One of them was a self-driving car that doesn't even have a steering wheel. Um, then one of them is, you know, a, a car that is, so, you know, like, like we're familiar with more or less. And then the other one was a, the cockpit of a Boeing 747. And that's basically sort of the continuum. And no one wants to fly the 747 anymore. And no one really wants the completely driverless car. You know, they, they want to be in the middle. And, and frankly, that's where Enscape is. So I think we're in a position where we have to, um, like I said, we really have to prove the, the added value that you get from that high level of control. And if you can't, then you know uh, we're in a tough position to make an argument. To be perfectly honest, I think so. That's why I like that it, it challenges us to say, okay, this is why it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. And and you in development has not stood still on Enscape. Like you said, you just released a new version and some new features in there as well. I think is uh, one of them at least is uh, you can have different sun settings per kind of saved view, right? So that's yeah, yeah, exactly. That's like one of the uh, the little features that we have, and then some other things that we're working on um, for the future is around uh, parametric assets. This will, this is under uh, under development. So the idea being is that you can have maybe one uh, master asset and then multiple variations of it. And so right now, what we've been doing is actually talking to customers and asking them, well, what exactly do you want? for different assets, obviously different colors, you know, different textures, things like that. But there's some unusual ideas that, that we've been considering, like say um, weathering and aging, for instance, you know, that the same asset, but can you show it over time and things like that, that are of interest. Um, so we've been really enjoying the conversations with different customers. And as always, you never get one answer um, other than everything. Um, yeah. We want it so, all. Yeah. <laughs> so that's our job to take all that and, uh, and try to come up with something that really does meet the needs of our users. But uh, you know, that's, that's where the fun is, honestly. Yeah. Exciting. Well, thanks for taking the time today. This has been a fantastic conversation. I hope others get value out of it as well. Uh, there's definitely some things to, to, we should all be thinking about and having conversations like these about. So I encourage everyone to do that, uh, comment on the episode. Uh, you will be able to get in contact with Roderick. I'll put a link to his LinkedIn in the show notes and connect with him, connect with me, keep the conversation going. And until next time, thanks thanks for uh, the conversation. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely, Evan. My pleasure. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.